such a privilege to be able to talk to you this morning. Um, and uh, if you don't know me, I'm Anna. I'm married to Simon, who's uh, one of the leaders here. I think we've got a photo of him looking absolutely wonderful. Yeah, there you go. So that's who I'm married to. Apparently he's normal sometimes, but, you know, I don't see it that often. Um, and I'm on the leadership team here as well. And it's my great privilege to be able to talk to you this morning um, from 2 Corinthians 6. Um, I'm at, I've actually had a really awful week, so I'd love to start by praying been terrible so um (laughs) should have known it would be a terrible week when you preach but um it would be really good if we could pray lord jesus uh i just thank you so much that your word is full of truth thank you that your word sets us free and brings us complete freedom in our lives and lord jesus i just pray um as i preach this morning you'd help me to clearly unpack your words to make it really accessible Um, And Lord, I pray for people as they listen, that you would just open their hearts to hear your word and to really understand your great love for them and that you have work for them to do, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, Rob talked to us from 2 Corinthians 5, and he explained how we have this ministry of reconciliation because we have in ourselves been reconciled to God. And because we've been reconciled to God, we now we have been entrusted with that message to bring to others. So from that, we're going to start reading in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, and read through to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. So, should come up by me, yeah. Uh, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honour and dishonour, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricting, restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak to you as children. Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which actually is another word for the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing that I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's a great passage, probably do about 25 sermons from it, but in the next 30 minutes I'm going to try and stay focused on just a few points. You'll notice at the beginning of this chapter, Paul makes this really startling statement in verse 2. He says, now is the time. Now is the favourable time, and now is the day of salvation. Salvation has come through Jesus, through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we could be made righteous or made right before God. We've been offered the amazing grace of God. Now, if you've been a believer a long time, I think... When um, we, we see the wonderful testimony of someone like Chelsea who's really met with Jesus and been transformed, it should remind you and encourage you, and for some of us it should actually cause us to ask God for forgiveness, that the Lord Jesus has saved us and set us free. All the things that we have done that are wrong were poured onto Jesus. And if you don't have that same exuberance in your walk with Jesus, then actually that is something you need to examine in your heart. Now is the day of salvation. The Lord Jesus has saved you. We don't deserve it. It doesn't matter if you live in a great big mansion. You still don't deserve it. The Lord Jesus has poured it out into your life. It's the amazing truth of the gospel. Salvation has come to all people, not just the people of Israel. We have access to God the Father through Jesus. And Paul, in this passage, is encouraging the Corinthians to not take the grace of God in vain, but to remember that now is the time of salvation. The whole of the Old Testament was building towards this great day and time of salvation, where all people can come and worship God in spirit and in truth, like Jesus said to the woman at the well. In Peter's preach to the people in Jerusalem at Pentecost, which is recorded in Acts 2, he declared the extraordinary truth that the promise of forgiveness of sins, sins is just wrongdoing, the things that you do that are wrong, and salvation was for everyone, adult or child, who call on the name of the Lord. And we also have that great privilege of living in the day of salvation, If you know that you're living in the day of salvation, then don't take that in vain. Know that what a great privilege we have in our life, that we live in this day of salvation. The grace of God has been freely given to all people. In Luke 4, Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61. He stood up and read this. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus then said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is the time we are living in. In Titus 2, we're told that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for very rich, wealthy, lovely, white, middle-class Christians. No, he has brought salvation for all 
people. And that includes people that you tut at when you walk along on the side of the street, which we all do, don't we? Actually, the Lord Jesus has come to save all people, even the people you don't like. He's come to save them. It's the amazing truth of the day of salvation. This passage tells us that in this time, what is our job as a believer? Well, as a result, an outworking of salvation, believers are called to be, firstly, ambassadors of Christ. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, which is why I stole a bit of Rob's passage. And and also called to be servants of God, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. William Barclay, one of my favourite theologians, I do like him, he writes to the point, which is helpful, in his book about 2 Corinthians, says that the responsibility of ambassadors is to uphold the honour of the country they represent, to commend their country to those among whom they are sent. And we have this amazing calling to represent the kingdom of God, to those that we meet, to uphold the honour of the kingdom of God. Our behaviour shouldn't be an obstacle to people knowing, loving and understanding who Jesus is. As Paul says in verse 3 of this passage, basically, our behaviour should match our message. I can see you all looking at me like, I thought you were going to say nice things. I'm sorry, most of this preach is quite like... Um, you know, in your face. Um, (laughs) I'm preaching it to me as well, not just to you. But Hodge, a 19th century theologian, in his commentary on verse 3 says this. It's really, really challenging. Everybody knows that the moral power of a preacher, which is all of us when we declare the gospel to our friends and family, depends almost entirely on the conviction that the people have of his sincerity and of the purity of his motives. This is the source of power for which neither learning nor talents can compensate. It's really, really challenging, isn't it? It's inconsistent to declare the love, kindness, and grace of God, and then to be a potty mouth, grumpy, unreasonable, contentious employee. That doesn't work. Or to be a nasty, mean-spirited, unfair boss who tells people to go away when you're feeling grumpy. It doesn't match to carry the message of reconciliation, but constantly be getting into arguments and disagreements with every person you meet. It doesn't work if you're known as the grumpy old man or the hormonal woman. Sorry, I can say it because I'm a woman. No, Sai could never say it. We'd all beat him to death afterwards, Um, (laughs) which would also not be a great representation of the kingdom. Um, We don't want to be the neighbour where people say, oh, don't even park an inch over their drive. They come and knock on your door and have a go at you. We don't, it does not consistent with the message. We can't be the people who are the high demands complaining customer, or dare I even say it, and I dare because I'm a nurse, the really difficult patient who yells at the receptionist because the doctor is running late. I promise you, if we could make them run faster, we would, but they don't. Um, being sexually promiscuous, drinking too much on a work night out, gossiping and speaking unkind words, being critical and rude to others does not match the message of reconciliation. And it becomes an obstacle to people hearing and understanding the message of reconciliation. You know, in my work, I'm a practice nurse. Um, 
it has not been an easy time. And, um, and, and particularly in my workplace, there's been loads and loads and loads of really difficult relational issues. And quite rightly, the town of Halsham is quite grumpy with GPs at the moment, and I understand that. Um, and it's been a very difficult time to work in a GP practice for many, many reasons. People are unhappy, they feel hard done to, they feel that they're not being listened to. And at work, it's really hard to tread the line well of being an ambassador of Christ, recognizing there is a problem, understanding everyone's tired and overpressured, understanding they're probably not paid enough for the amount of abuse that they get, but also not giving in to being critical, to being rude about other people, to spreading discontent in your workplace, to being the person that says, do you know, the other day I did this and then this happened. Now, I definitely don't always get it right, but how I've helped myself with that is that I've made the rule that if I come home and I feel I've overstepped the mark, basically my conscience tells me you really got that wrong, then I will go into work the next time I'm in and I will apologise to the person that I've been over the line with. Or it might have turned into gossip or being critical of my boss, who is still my boss, even if I don't agree with what they do. They're still my boss. And, do you know, it really helps, because when you have to go in and apologise to people, it's really... Um, humbling and not doesn't easily come to me to be honest and so I've had to learn if I feel that this may be something I shouldn't say don't say it because you're just going to have to apologize for it when you come back in and it will be and then, and then that will be embarrassing and horrible so it's really good to put things in place to just help make sure your behavior matches the message that you have through this chapter we can see that being a new creation being a servant of God, called to be an ambassador of Christ and his kingdom, means we're just going to draw out two things. There's loads of things in there, but we're just going to draw out two things. Firstly, how you respond to troubles really matters. How do you commend yourself in troubles? Secondly, you are called to be holy, a temple of God. So let's look at the first one. How you respond to troubles matter when you are an ambassador of Christ and his kingdom. We commend ourselves, or we don't, by how we respond. Paul, in verses 3 to 10, describes the blizzard of troubles that he encountered. Um, You know, I always think it's really helpful to think of yourself when you become a Christian, is you're like a toddler. Like, we're like toddlers, aren't we? And actually, sometimes we revert back to being toddlers. And in trouble, a lot of us, or parts of our character, still revert to being that toddler. And hopefully, in the next little bit, we're going to learn some tools to help us to not behave like a toddler when we hit trouble. Paul describes the internal conflicts of the Christian life, the things that weigh down your spirit and your heart, things like grief and anxiety, despair, the times when you just can't see what is supposed to happen in that situation. Paul's blizzard also includes the external troubles of Christian life, um, like persecution. In fairness, Paul's lists of beatings, riots, imprisonments are rarely the case here. haven't met anyone yet who that's happened to in the UK. However, for many believers across the world, the suffering that accompanies the Christian life is on a par with what Paul is describing here. One of the early church fathers, Tertullian, I say it different than Sai. Sai says he's right, I'm right. 
I am, I know I am. I'm definitely right. Um, Famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that is true, has been true a long time ago in this country as well. And this is certainly true in the Horn of Africa, where we work as a charity. Our friends there have suffered immense physical, emotional, mental and social abuse to the extent that it's horrifying to listen to. They've been imprisoned, electrocuted, tortured, left in isolation for days and weeks, separated from their friends, put in prison with their babies, beaten, broken, they've lost their businesses, they've lost their homes, they've had their knees broken, they've lost their friends and their communities, and they've done it all to advance the kingdom. The cost of being an ambassador of Christ, carrying the message of reconciliation, is huge in countries where persecution occurs. And yet, they have remembered arguably more than most Western believers that their citizenship is in heaven. They know where their home is, and it's not here. This life passes, and they will be with Jesus forever in a place with no pain or suffering. Their hearts and their minds and their resolve is focused on the reward of going home and hearing Jesus say over them, well done, my good and faithful servant, a truth that we must learn here in the West. Increasingly, I think it is fair to say that the comfort and luxuries afforded to us here in the West seem to distract us or even, sadly, make us long less for our eternal home, which Rob reminded us about last week in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 8. Paul, interestingly, in this like blizzard of troubles, includes the effort of Christian life, the labour of it. Do you remember when I did that preach about six weeks ago? I talked about how the word used for labour is actually working to the point of weariness. Being an ambassador and a servant of Christ is hard work. It is tiring, and Paul includes this in, the, in his list of troubles. So how did Paul respond to these troubles? How did he and how can we respond in a commendable way? Now, the list here of stuff is absolutely massive. So you're going to have to have your listening ears on, like I say to the children. They never do. I say to them, and when I'm in the little box, should we put our listening ears on? And they just look like, no. (laughs) No, I'm not going to today. I'm going to drive my truck into your knee until you stop talking. But put our listening ears on. Um, We're going, and actually, what Paul talks about first is endurance. We endure trials and troubles. The Greek word actually encompasses the idea of patient endurance and consistency. The ability to bear things in a triumphant way. You'll notice here that Paul doesn't say or even imply, well, these terrible things when I was beaten and put in prison and was on a boat and got bitten by a snake and all those things, they were just like water off a duck's back for me because I'm almost like an angel. It just floated off. I didn't even notice. He doesn't say, oh, I just floated through in the heavenlies and barely noticed what was happening. He doesn't deny that troubles, inflictions, hardships, anxieties affect us because they do. They do affect us. Actually, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, Paul wrote that the pressures were so great when he was persecuted in Asia, he even despaired of life. 
I mean, can you imagine? Some of you will have been there where things are so difficult. You just despair of life. Think, what is this life about? You are not alone in that. Paul has been there as well. The key is here that he endured. God calls us to endure, to consistently hold to God's truth and his great love for us, even when it's through tears, illness, suffering, persecution, tiredness and frustration. We hold on and we cling to our saviour. We bear things, not by being super spiritual and being one person at home with your family and one person at church with your Christian family, but by being consistent in our behaviour we don't do it by pretending when people say, how is your week? So, oh, I am really well, thanks. I'm really well. Everything's just fine. When actually you're in the middle of a horrendous trial. We can be wonderful, terrible at the same time. I've taken that brilliant quote from Kay Warren, who um, Rick and Kay Warren lead the Saddleback Churches, and they suffered catastrophic grief when their adult son committed suicide and she said when people ask her how are you sometimes the right answer is wonderful terrible all at the same time because her life is wonderful she has children who are going on with God and married and they have grandchildren and they're saved and they have a beautiful home and they have so many wonderful things that they are so thankful for but that actually they do also carry the terrible weight of grief And they can't deny that. There's days when it's much stronger. We're also called to behave like the one we represent. If you've got your Bible on you, do you want to flip to uh, Philippians 2, verses um, 2 to 8, but I'm just going to read some of it. It says this. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We humble ourselves before God. If you're expecting that when you become a believer, you're never going to face a hard time again, then actually that's not true, you will. And the Lord Jesus is calling us to humbly walk through them before God, to accept that the Lord Jesus has given us freedom. He's given us salvation. He's given us an eternal home. So we can humbly walk through trials, not saying, how dare you, God, but saying, I submit to the life that the Lord has given me, and I'm going to walk it with dignity and with grace. We endure these trials through purity. Now, I looked up the words because I wasn't entirely sure what it meant. And it actually means the careful avoidance of sins. You know, I don't know about you, but quite often if I've done something wrong, I tend to just whip through it. I ask for forgiveness um, and then I sort of leave it. But um, I think sometimes it's really good to think and reflect on whether it's a repeated behavior, a repeated thought pattern or repeated action. And then ask yourself, what led to or motivated that behavior? And be wise to the devil's schemes and plans when he accuses you or tempts you. I heard this brilliant um, preach on, on sin. And he talked about how a Christian counselor had once compared how the devil works 
when he tempts and accuses us to... Um, apparently, if you lift the top of a piano... Uh, I don't know if this is true, because I'm not musical, but if you lift the top of a piano and you sing a note into it... I mean, if you're tone deaf like me, it probably wouldn't work because you probably have to have actually know what tone you're singing. But if you sing a note into it, the corresponding string will vibrate of that note when you lift the lid of the piano. And he said, that's how the devil works. He lifts the lid of your heart and he sings into it with a temptation or an accusation. And that string in your heart, it vibrates and it moves to that. And actually, we need to be people who you know what the strings in your heart are and so that we're careful to avoid sin. We don't just walk into it. We learn to say, this is a string in my heart. I reckon it's being like just got at the moment. Know where the devil is going to accuse you and tempt you. We get through trials by knowledge, patience, showing kindness, Again, I didn't really know what kindness meant, so I looked it up, and it actually means a disposition to do good. I think it's really important to reflect upon. Would people describe you as someone who has a disposition to do good? Now, I have to say, that is definitely not something that I'm very good at. My family are like, they're Christians, but we are the family who, if there was like a... um, you know, a war, and people fought in a war. Um, Sai's family would be like the lovely family that would come up with a peace plan and would sort out how they're going to do it really nicely to minimise death and destruction. My family is more come in, kill you all, take all your stuff and leave. That's like my family. So I've had to learn... My brother's like... My brother's the exception to the rule. Um, But um, I've had to learn to show kindness a disposition to do good. And it's so important. It commends the kingdom to people. Kindness commends the kingdom to people as they watch. We need to be full of and dependent on the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to make time for worship, for soaking in the Holy Spirit, for receiving the Holy Spirit, to be strengthened and refreshed You know, in this passage, it talks about that Paul did these things through the power of God. You know, you're not going to get far in a trial or a trouble if you depend on your own power. We don't have very much as people. We're really weak. I don't know. I mean, I've noticed that about myself. When I try and do things in my own strength, I'm so weak. I don't actually have much resolve or consistency or strength. I run out of it super duper quick. It just goes. But the, the power of the Lord Jesus and of God never, ever runs out. He is infinite. And so we have that power available to us. The more stressful your life is, the more trouble and pressure you have in your life, the more time you should be spending with Jesus. Don't let it get squeezed out. It is your absolute priority in times of trouble to be with Jesus. You need him. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. And we use the weapons of righteousness in our right and our left hand, which is basically defensive and offensive weapons, as listed in Ephesians 6, you know, the armour of God. Not an armour where we actually hurt people, but the armour of the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the message of peace that we bring to people. You know, when you hear that list, Some of you here will be thinking, I can't do that. That's like a really difficult to-do list. I'm never going to tick it off. 
But actually, it's the grace of God. These things have been gifted to us as a grace of God. It's not something you have to conjure up in yourself. It has been gifted to you because now is the day of salvation. Now is the time when when we get saved, we get sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're not doing all these things because you think, I must do it, because if I don't do it, I won't earn my salvation. And when I get weighed on the last day, it just I won't make it. Actually, no, we can be like this in times of trouble because God has poured his grace into our life. You are saved. If you've asked Jesus into your life, you are saved. Nothing will change it. You're saved. Even if you fail, you're saved. The Lord Jesus loves you, but he has given you everything that you need to be able to walk through trouble in a way that commends the kingdom of God to others. Secondly, we're called to be ambassadors of God who are holy, set apart for God. Um, the second part of that quote from Barclay, you've got three quotes in Barclay, just to warn you, because I do love him. I do love him. I do love his books. It says this, Ambassadors of any nation live in a foreign land among people who usually speak a different language, who have a different tradition, and who follow a different way of living. Christians are always like that. They live in the world. They take part in all the life and work of the world. But they are citizens of heaven. To that extent, they are strangers. And then he says this. Now, Barclay said it, so you can't tell me off for it because he said it, and he's dead now, so you can't really tell anyone off for it. He says, those who are not willing to be different cannot be Christians at all. That's what he comments on these verses. Paul instructs the Corinthians to be holy, to be set apart for God. In the passage we've read, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. He instructs the Corinthians, earlier on in the passage, to not yoke themselves with unbelievers. Well, um, And you might think, well, what does this mean? There should be a picture coming up of cows. Is it there? Oh, there it is. And, and this is a yoke, if you've never seen one, because we don't see them in the field so much anymore. Um, but you can see they are tied together, and they're not going to get apart. Even if they pull in different direction, they are tied together. Paul is saying, do not have an intimate association with unbelievers. He's not saying have nothing to do with them. He's saying don't have an intimate association with unbelievers, which results in your life being tied together like these cows are. And most theologians, and I myself, would apply that to courting, marriage, business and financial partnerships and tie-ins with unbelievers. Interestingly, Deuteronomy 22 verse 10 in the Old Testament law forbade yoking together different species of animals. And the next pictures will show you why. I just love the camel one. I just think it's fantastic. But you can see why. It doesn't work, does it, really? It's not so great. And the donkey one as well. Although sometimes I think, actually, for Christians, maybe we should have two pictures of donkeys. Um, but anyway. Um, his reasoning is very simple. What can light have to do with darkness? The two can't exist together. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit, who is God, lives inside of us. The temple is where God dwells. It's the house of God. Paul argues, how can one who has God living inside of himself or herself make an intimate association with one who doesn't? How can you serve the kingdom of light 
and join with someone who's serving the kingdom of darkness. Just like the picture, it just doesn't work. As a believer, as ambassadors of Christ, our goals, interests, joys, and overall measure of success and our aim in life is polar opposite to someone who does not love and serve Jesus. We do not flirt to convert. We do not presume upon God's kindness that if I marry a non-believer, God will definitely save them. The Bible is clear. Actually, we don't choose, once we're a believer, to enter into this situation. We choose Jesus over it all. Now, I'm, I know, um, because we know this church, that um, there are some here who will find what I'm saying very, very painful to hear and are thinking, but I've become a believer and my partner hasn't become a believer. Or... I got saved, I'm in a stable relationship, we have children and we're going to get married because I've become a believer, but he or she is still not a believer. Or you're thinking, but I'm married to someone who's walked away from Jesus, what does that mean for my life? Or, oh dear, I'm not a believer and I've come here with my believing spouse, what does that mean for me? We're not going to put you in a yoke, you're right. Um, Firstly, be assured that we are all equally loved and valuable and precious to God. Your spouse or partner is not less valuable or less precious to God. You are equally precious to God. Jesus loves you. In fact, he loves you so much that he died for you. Secondly, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 to 16, um, I'll leave you to read it, believing spouses are clearly called to stay in marriages. And remember then, marriages would have been ritual, spiritual marriages, some of them, um, and be the very best spouse that, can, that there can be so that the way that they behave and treat their spouse brings them to Christ. If you are in this situation, you're the believer in the marriage, then your primary setting to be an ambassador of Christ is in your marriage and in your home. Christians should be the very best spouses as they represent Christ's love in the way they behave. You know, if you want any further clarity or you're worried um, about what I've said, just please come and speak to me or one of the elders. Don't, don't leave here feeling confused or distressed or unloved and think, I don't know what that means for my life. We wouldn't want you to leave here feeling like that. And actually, I thought it'd be really good if we just pray quickly, because I know it is a real situation for um, quite a few people who are in our church. So shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for the wisdom of your word, and we thank you so much that you take us as we are. And Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for every situation that we find ourselves in. I just pray here for um, marriages where one believer is walking with God and one believer isn't, and one, one person isn't walking with you or is an unbeliever. Lord, I just pray, would you draw people to yourself? Would they come to know and love and understand your great kindness that now is the day of salvation for them as well? That, um, Lord, I pray for Christian spouses. Would they be great husbands and wives with the way that they treat their partner, bring them to the kingdom of light, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. You know, one of the amazing truths of this passage is that we are the temple of God. Have you ever thought about what that really means, being the temple of God? 
If you, um, it's why you're called to be holy, actually. It puts all of this passage into context. Because not only do we represent God's kingdom, but we ourselves have God living inside of us. As I was sort of thinking about being in the temple of God, I had to get out of my head the picture of myself dressed as a temple, because I think I did it once for a children's... I have some vague memory of dressing as a temple for a children's thing. Um, then uh, I thought, and God brought me to Exodus 24... So I'll just read it for you. It says this. When um, God, the glory of God came down to Mount Sinai to meet with Moses. And it says this. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud of glory covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of God was like a little tiny gentle thing. No, it was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. That's how the glory of God is described, a devouring fire. And yet, the glory of God and the wonder of God... God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, dwells inside of you and me, if you are a believer. The one who searches the very depths of God, we're told in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10, lives inside of you. It's totally mind-blowing, isn't it? That God himself dwells inside of us. Um, I was thinking about it, and I thought, it's so humbling that inside of me, and all the things that I know are wrong in my life, the Holy Spirit still dwells inside of me. It's a tremendous, undeserved privilege, and it's actually slightly terrifying all at the same time. I thought it was great that Nay, she's out with the youth, brought um, that word this morning where she was reading. You know, that amazingly, the power and the wonder of God, God himself, that meant that the Israelites were so scared when God's glory came down the mountain, they drew a perimeter so they didn't even touch anywhere near the mountain because they were so scared that actually we, by some amazing miracle of God, by Jesus coming, him who was no sin, becoming sin for us, that we get to have the same God in the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us and we don't die it's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. You know, we do here, obviously in this church, totally believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that he will always fulfill his plans and purpose, even when we don't get it right. In fact, if you came and asked us, we could easily tell you about 25 times that we've seen that happen when we've got it really wrong, and yet somehow God's done something amazing. He's not dependent on us. However, Scripture in many places, including this passage, make it clear that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. God wants to use you. In this time, how we love God and how we live for him as those who know him intimately and have experienced his grace really matters. It's so important and it's such a great privilege. You know, I'm going to finish with a quote from my friend, Mr. Barclay, that reminds us of our responsibility. Do you want to stand as I read it? And the band, do you want to come up? 
you know, it's had some really hard bits in it, this uh, preach. So I'm, you know, hear it with the grace that I'm bringing it. Um, this is the quote. It says this, The honour of Christ and of the church are in the hands of each one of us. By every word and action, we can make others think more or less of our church and of our master Christ. So challenging, isn't it? It does matter how you live. Don't give up in times of trouble. Honour the Lord. He's doing something wonderful in your life. If you're going through a difficult time, he's doing something wonderful. As people watch you, how you behave matters so much. It's not unimportant. Don't give up and don't give in to the devil's plans for your life. Persevere in your walk with Jesus. Shall I pray for us? And then we'll um, sing together. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much that you who were no sin became sin for us. We thank you that you humbled yourself and became obedient to death on the cross. It totally overwhelms us to know that Holy Spirit, God himself, you would dwell inside of us. What an amazing privilege we have to know you, to walk with you. Thank you that you don't stand aloof from our troubles and our difficulties. But actually, you've given us your words, you've given us your Holy Spirit, that we have what we need to be able to commend the kingdom of God to those that we meet. That people will look at our lives and say, look at how they've done that. How have they done that? That we would be able to say that the goodness of God, the grace of God, the salvation of God has enabled us to live a life that pleases you. Lord, I pray for people here who are in a time of real trouble, of either sickness, grief, of, of suffering. Lord Jesus, would they know your great delight in them, that you love them so much. Holy Spirit, would you pour upon them, strengthen them, encourage them, remind them, and recommission them that they have the ministry of reconciliation, that how they behave in this time is really, really important. And Lord Jesus, would we be a people who bring many to know and love you, that commend your kingdom to others by how we behave and how we act. And I pray this in your name. Amen.